Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be picking up in verse 14 in a minute. We, we actually, last week, we left off in verse 13. I had planned to get all the way through 18, and uh, we, didn't, we didn't even really come close. Um, but that's just the way it goes. That's what I like about Wednesday night Bible study is that if you slow down and tarry on a part, you're, you're not on a schedule. You can just pick it up where you were the last time. And so we're going to pick it up there. And, um, and we, we last, last week we ended off talking about uh, uh, not wasting the now, waiting for the then. And, 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 and realizing, you know, that Paul, he took advantage of the opportunities that he had as he was there in, in prison in Rome when he was writing this letter to the Philippians. And, um, and, and so he's talking about these things and he, and we also talked about, uh, uh, uh you know, the, that he was confident that God was going to finish the work that he started in them. And, uh, and in verse 14, he really, he really tells us, um, why he has that confidence. So we're going to pick it up there and then we'll go and I'm, I'm, I'm planning on getting through verse 26, but as we learned last week, that may not happen. So we'll see. But verse 14 says this, and, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, so not only was Paul uh, sp spreading the gospel through his contacts in prison, because as he was there in prison, there were, they were uh, uh, the, the guards that were coming to guard him. And, and when I say in prison, he was a prisoner. But as we talked about before, he was he had to rent basically an apartment space and uh, he couldn't leave there. So he wasn't like in a dungeon somewhere, but he was still confined in that area. And these guards would come in and, and he would share the gospel with them. He was taking advantage of the moment of the opportunity that he did have. And so now not only is he spreading the gospel through those contacts in prison, his efforts are being multiplied outside the prison. Paul's faith and confidence and patience in spite of his imprisonment helped all of these fellow believers to become more confident in the Lord. They, whatever the reason was for their lack of confidence before, they saw Paul's faith and, and, and they saw what he was doing while he was in prison and it strengthened their, their own faith and it, it encouraged them. Kind of makes me think of uh, a story I read about uh, on Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944, uh, D-Day, when, when the regiments of men were pinned down with fear and they were desperate for confidence, there was a brigadier general who, who could have just sent a, a written order, he could have just uh, given a verbal order uh, to, to, to move forward, but he took charge by roaming the beaches like a coach along the sidelines, and while his language was coarse, his courage was unmis unmistakable, and and he moved the, the beach hit up, uh, beach, beachhead uphill, turning a disaster into a victory. And Paul's battle was spiritual, uh, but, but, and, he, and he carried no rank except servant of Jesus Christ, but his bold leadership inspired many others to share the gospel, and his, his courage dissolved other people's fears. In, in essence, it was as if people were watching his life, and they said, see, it can be done. If he can do it, then, then I can do it. That was really the essence, and, and your faith in grueling circumstances can serve as a catalyst for faith in the lives of people around you. That's why, you know, going through hard times is not necessarily uh, always a bad thing. I mean, I, I, it is bad. I don't, that sounds right. I can't think of a better way to say it. Uh, there's good things that come out of it, put it that way. 
because not only are you strengthened, not only do you grow through those times, but other people, when they're watching your life, it has an impact on them and the way that they live. You know, I, I was thinking about this actually just a few minutes ago and in, in, uh, my mind went to the story of David and Goliath. And that's always been one of my favorite stories, partially because my name is David. And so he was my favorite, you know, and he killed a giant. And that's a cool story. But, but one of the things that we don't often pay attention to is, is that for days, Goliath came out and, and he defied the armies of Israel. And, uh, and was just, it was just a horrible situation. And, and the armies, you know, all these big rugged soldiers, including King Saul, who was, he was not a, a small man himself. He was head and shoulders above all of Israel. So he was a big, big man uh, as it was. And they are all, are, are all cowering in the shadows in the background, hiding in the tents. Oh no, Goliath is out there again. And he's saying, give me a man that we may fight. And I'm not going to get into the details tonight of what that means or why he was out there and why they did it that way. But, but we, we know the story, how David shows up and he hears this and, and, uh, and then eventually he responds and he tells King Saul, I'll do it. I'll take this guy out. And they said, well, what makes you think you can? And he said, well, you know, listen, I, I already fought a, a lion and a bear and, and the lion, I mean, he says, I, I beat them to death with my bare hands. And, and if the Lord gave me victory over them, the Lord will give me victory over him, over this, this giant, this uncircumcised Philistine. And so to make a, a, I need to make it a little shorter, but we all know the story. I don't need to retell the story. But at the end of that, when David defeats Goliath and, uh, and he cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword, with Goliath's own sword, that in that moment, what happened was suddenly all of the armies of Israel charged the battleground. What had changed? The only thing that had changed was they suddenly realized we didn't have to wait this long if God could use that scrawny little shepherd boy to kill this giant, he could have used me. And so they, they charged the battlefield and because of his faith, their faith grew and there was a resounding victory that day. And that's what was taking place with Paul. I really strongly believe that they were looking at him and saying, man, look at the faith he's got. I mean, he's, he's facing potential execution. And we're going to get into that tonight when we look at some of the things he wrote. He knew that that was a reasonable possibility that he could be killed because of, of, uh, of his faith for Christ. And they said, look at him. He's, he's in jail because he was preaching the gospel. And what is he doing while he's in jail? He's preaching the gospel. Nothing stops this guy. And they said, that's the same God that I serve. I, and I, I just believe that that's what was happening. That was one of the reasons why many of them stepped up and began to proclaim the, the, the word of God. As it said there at the end of verse 14, it said, uh, much, the, uh, much more bold to speak the word without fear. I think that's a powerful picture for us. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to, in, uh, to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul had been, made, had been made aware that, that some of the brothers who had found this new emboldenment 
to speak about Christ, that there were some of them that were doing so out of wrong motives. And, and their motives, he said, stem from envy and from rivalry, which, by the way, uh, believe it or not, uh, still exists in churches today, that there, are, that there are pastors in churches across America that still think that somehow I'm competing with that guy across the, the across town when we're not. We're all on the same team. We're all pulling in the same direction, or we, at least we should be with the gospel. But but these these are people that are that are their motives come from envy and rivalry. And now that this great missionary Paul had been virtually silenced, I mean. He, he, he can still preach the gospel there, but he can't go out on the streets. He can't do some of the big things that he did before. Now some of these brothers were hoping to make a name for themselves in the vacuum that he left. And, and the, these preachers were driven by, by, by competition. And they, perhaps they hoped for uh, great notoriety, you know, that Paul has become very well known, very famous. Maybe there's a, a place there for me and trying to turn people's eyes away from Paul and toward themselves. And, and there were, those who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry were doing so because of their own selfish ambition. Which, by the way, I'm not going to spend time on this. The Bible never says that ambition is wrong. It just says that selfish ambition is wrong. What we need to have is Christ's ambition. To catch a vision of what he could do and be ambitious for the kingdom of God. But that's a whole different message. And after I said that, I'm thinking, man, I wish I should have done some more on that one. Uh, but uh, anyway, th but these preachers, they're, they're you know, they're, they're not nearly as interested in the message as they were in their own reputation. And, and now, and I want, you to, I want you to realize this too. Apparently, what they're teaching, the doctrine was sound. Because Paul didn't say, he never says in here uh, that, they're, that they're preaching wrong doctrine. So their doctrine was sound. They were not false teachers. And, and we know that Paul, historically, um, all through the New Testament, he, he never tolerated any kind of false teaching, not in, not in the least, least bit at all. In fact, listen to what he said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, when he's addressing them about false teachers. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So we know he feels very, very strongly about false teaching. And he doesn't condemn what they're teaching here. He just says the error is, is in the motive, not in the content. And these, these self-seeking opportunists hoped that Paul would be angered at the notoriety of new and powerful preachers who took his, his place while he was in prison. And out of, out of their jealousy, they were, they were actually hoping that, that by preaching the word of God, that it would inflict greater pain on his life. It's a really sad deal. Uh, but, but little did these men understand Paul. They didn't understand Paul's sincere love for God. They didn't understand his single-minded focus on spreading the gospel. They didn't realize that he loved Jesus and he, and he loved the gospel so much that he did not care what happened to him. 
He did not care if his, if his imprisonment got worse. He did not care if he suffered more. All he cared was the gospels being preached. Now, those who preach Christ out of goodwill, they did so in love, spreading the good news of Christ with pure motives. I think those are the ones who saw Paul and said, it can, it can be done. If God can use Paul in the middle of that, he can use me. Uh, and they knew that Paul was in prison, not because of any, any criminal act, but simply for his defense of the gospel. Paul, Paul had, had landed in prison because of his devotion to Christ and his zeal to spread the gospel. That's the only reason he's there. Yet his fellow believers in Rome fearlessly picked up where he left off, continuing and expanding his ministry. And, and it's, there's, a, there's a little phrase in the middle of the, that passage that I just read that I think is very interesting because it tells us that Paul regarded his imprisonment as being, in a way, appointed by God. He, he said, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 16, I am put here. Put here is, is an intentional thing. It's not an accidental thing. He, he knew, he believed that he had been placed there strategically for that moment to fulfill God's greater purpose and he, he believed that his defense of the gospel before, before Caesar in the, in, the, in the court there in Rome, he, he really believed that uh, uh, even though there was some doubt in his mind, he didn't know which way it was going to go, but he believed that, this was, that he was there for the express purpose of defending the gospel to Caesar and, and that he had been placed there for a reason, that God was going to accomplish something through that. And God had already used Paul's imprisonment to bring the gospel to the Roman Empire, emperor. He, he had already used Paul to bring the gospel to the, to the Praetorian guard there in, in, the, in, the, uh, in Rome. And, but, but I want you to think about it. Paul, he, he could have become depressed or discouraged or disillusioned in all of this. I mean, he has this call to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's a traveling apostle. He's planting churches. He's preaching. He's doing all these things. And now he can't go anywhere. And it'd been really easy to respond to that with, with, with being depressed and discouraged and becoming disillusioned. But instead, you know what he did? He said, listen, I believe God's in this one way or another. And I believe God's at work one way, one way or another. He recognized God's hand at work even in the unpleasant times in his life. And I think the lesson for us is we got to remember that we serve a sovereign God. And that he's, he's, he at times allows us to go into situations. In a sense, he puts us where he wants us to be. And he leads us through those times because there's something that he's trying to do, something he's trying to develop. You know, I mean... Nobody wants to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see anybody lining up and saying, me first. I don't see that. But you know what? When we walk through that valley, we discover a shepherd. And so that's the process of it. And, and so I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I have difficulty ex accepting where I am in my life? Do I resent where God has placed me? Whether it's in an actual prison or a place that just feels like one, God wants you to serve him faithfully and joyfully. And, and, and we need to learn the lesson of being content with whatever God gives us and wherever he puts us. And to trust that he has, is, has enough power to direct our lives. You know, what does the word say? The steps of a righteous man 
are ordered of the Lord. Do we believe it or not? And, and so uh, I, th I think when we believe that, when we understand that, it helps us to live with contentment to say, if God wants me to live, praise God. And this is really where Paul goes. He says, and if he, but if he wants me to die, praise God. Look at verse 18. This is his response. He says, okay, there are these people preaching for the wrong motives, trying to make things worse for me. This is his response. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I like how the NIV translates that because it helps us understand. Because what then to us doesn't, that's not a common question, not a common phrase, but, but this, is, this is what he says. This is what it means in response to these people preaching the gospel out of motives, to, out of rivalry and envy and uh, trying to make things worse for Paul. His response is, but what does it matter? What does it matter? That's not, that's not a typical human response. You know, anybody here know what I'm talking about? If, is there anybody besides me that would say, that's probably not how I would want to respond. He said, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ has preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul had this amazingly selfless attitude. Paul chose joy. And that's, that's the theme of this, of this whole epistle, is, is choosing joy, walking in joy, and, and realizing that the difference between joy and happiness uh, as, as we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, happiness, the root of, of that comes from the, an old English word that would be translated, we would say happenings. Our happiness is tied to our happenings, our circumstances. But joy is not dependent on circumstances. He, he, he knew that there was some preaching to build their own reputation, and he knew that some were taking advantage of his imprisonment, trying to make a name for themselves. But regardless of the motives of the preachers, Paul rejoiced that Christ was being preached. You know, there's a, I don't know if any of you, any of you have heard of Viktor Frankl. Um, he, uh, a, an author, he wrote a number of different books, but he was a Holocaust survivor, went through the, uh, the death camps. And he wrote this. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstance. S circumstances. Excuse me. If we, if we pursue happiness instead of choosing joy, then we'll become, as Viktor Frankl put it, playthings of circumstance. I think that's a powerful phrase. If, if my goal is happiness, not joy, then I become playthings of circumstance. Our inner, inner peace will be tossed back and forth according to the whim of events that are beyond our control. However, we have to remember we, it, we can choose our attitude. The, the one basic freedom that can't be taken away from us, we can choose joy even in the midst of the cruelest of circumstances. And, and I'm, I'm convinced with all my heart that joy does not come from without, but it comes from within. A life of calm, peaceful satisfaction, a, a positive attitude, a contented spirit. These are not dependent on circumstances, but they are dependent on our mindset. 
You know, the, the way I see it, there, there are two types of people. There are negative mindset people and there are positive mindset people. And you can use different words if you want. You can say people that are faith, filled with faith and people that are not, I don't care. But, but negative mindset people, need, they need certain things before they can be happy. And they're dependent on others to provide happiness. And they see happiness as always being out there, always somewhere in the future. But then there are other kind of people who need virtually nothing tangible to have inner joy. And they depend on Christ to give them joy by the Holy Spirit. And they choose to experience joy now, making it a present reality. Paul embodies this decision to live a joyful life in spite of troubling circumstances. I mean, remember who it is we're talking about here. He, he wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. Instead, he went as a prisoner. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to be treated with fairness and justice. And instead, he had been mistreated, falsely accused, and unjustly arrested. On top of that, when he finally got on the journey on the way to Rome, he was shipwrecked. And when he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a snake. I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong. If anybody had a right to look at the world through dim lenses, complaining that he had been victimized, it was Paul. It, you know, we live in a world where everybody, you know, it's, it's all about victimization. Everybody's a victim. And, and, you know, if anybody in the world could ever have said, I'm a victim, it could have been Paul. But that's not the way, what he did. And, and not only that, there were people preaching the gospel with the express purpose of making his imprisonment worse. Nevertheless, even through all of this, he did not complain. He was confident despite hardship. He was joyful in spite of others' ill will. And he was hopeful regardless of, of uncertainties and circumstances. What, what, a, what a great example for us. You know, in Paul's effort to reassure the Philippians, I think he gave, gives us two great principles. And th this is actually what I was trying to lead to last week to finish on, but we didn't get to. But uh, first is we can proclaim the gospel anywhere. Anywhere. Paul was in prison, but he did not that, allow that to hinder his missionary work. He said, God has called me to preach. Here I am in prison. Why should I not fulfill the calling on my life right here, right now? In, in fact, his imprisonment, he said, had served to advance the gospel. He, he witnessed to the soldiers who guarded him. The gospel was going forward, even though he couldn't travel around. Circumstances, listen, circumstances cannot stop you from fulfilling your call to spread the gospel to everyone around you. And that is your call. Every person in this room who's a follower of Christ, that is the call on your life. It may take place, it may take a different shape, it may be, you, he may use you to do that in a number of different ways, but ultimately your, your ministry call is to take the gospel of Christ to everybody around you. And there, there's, there are no circumstances that can prevent that from happening. You can do it with somebody, somewhere, no matter what's going on in your life. Second, not only we can, we can proclaim the gospel anywhere, but we are to proclaim the gospel everywhere. Whether, whether through Paul, uh, a, a prisoner, or through, through the guards, or through servants of Caesar's household, or through ordinary Roman citizens, the gospel was to be proclaimed everywhere. Now when I say that, here's the thing. We, we get this idea of proclaiming the gospel and we think, you know, somebody on a street corner, a street preacher, nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's great. But I'm, I'm just telling you that's, that's a very small and narrow part of what God's calling, calling us to do if we're going to preach the gospel. 
because it's, it's not about just standing on a street corner, you know, on a, on a soapbox. I don't even know what a soapbox is. I'm too young. Uh, you know, the, the, but, but we, some of you probably will tell me later. But, but I, I wanted to help illustrate this. I want to re- read a story or uh, well, I'll tell you a story. I won't read all of it, but it was uh, written by a man named Maxie Dunham. He was a, he's a biblical scholar, and, and, uh, but he told a story about uh, how he had been invited to preach at a place called Ocean Grove Camp Meeting on the New Jersey Atlantic Coast, and, and he and his wife went early to this conference that he was going to be preaching at, or this camp, camp meeting, whatever it was, and they went a little bit early to get some rest, and and so on a Saturday afternoon, before he was going to preach uh, that, at that, that camp meeting, they were, they were strolling around and they came upon this, this park. It was not very big, but it was quiet. It was cool. It was filled with beautiful trees. The squirrels were scampering all around. There were a few children over in, in the, playing kickball over in a corner of the park. And, and, and on a bench in the center of the park, there was a man who sat there smoking a cigar. And as they walked by, they just casually greeted him, just, just a casual, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? You know, I mean, you know, how, how many of you, I love t- greeting people, talking to people that I don't know, and, and it's not everybody likes to do that, but they just walked by and said, how are you doing? And they, they didn't really even expect an answer. In fact, they almost missed it. Have you ever been in that situation where you say something to somebody and they reply, and you, you almost miss what they said because you weren't expecting it? And but anyway, the fellow mumbled something about not being well and not, with not many words and almost half joking. But, uh, but, but m- miraculously, they, they heard him and they, they picked up on something and they stopped for a visit. Well, within minutes, strangers were, were sharing deeply and intimately. And he told the story of his wife ravaged with cancer in their retirement home only a block away, dying but not even knowing it. And a, and a big, strong man with no inner resources to face his crisis, he, he trembled with fear and, and tears began to flow freely. And he, he apologized as, as though he should not be crying in the presence of strangers. And he, he was as terrified of the future as a child is of a dark night when they're all alone. He, he, he said he had no one to talk to, no one with whom to share. And, and this preacher and his wife shared God's good news of love and care, and they prayed with him and prayed about his wife. And the, and, and the man's wife, who was the hugger in the family, embraced him. Meanwhile, dogs barked and chased around, uh, chased around the trees, and children squealed joyously in their games. And all the while, a divine transaction took place on that bench in the center of the park, and no one knew what was going on. It wasn't a big standing on the street corner preaching a big show, but it was a quiet moment of saying, this is a divine appointment. And they made a difference. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. You can preach the gospel to someone. To someone. God will set up divine appointments for us. In fact, I believe he does it all the time. But, but he'll set them up, and, and if we will pay attention, and we will take advantage of every opportunity he, pro- he, he provides, we can make a difference. But he will do it, even if we get no recognition for what we do. You know, Paul had 
no concern whatsoever for his own reputation or his own success. He had, he had dedicated his life to glorifying God. That's all he cared about. Didn't matter to him what happened to him, to him, his, his own body, his whatever. He understood that God was being glorified even as he sat in chains. Therefore, Paul could rejoice. You know, someone once said, and I don't remember where I first heard this, but they said, it's amazing how much can be accomplished when no one cares, when you don't care who gets the credit. Paul didn't care if somebody else got the credit for preaching a great message and people getting saved. All he cared about was people are getting saved. Are, are, are you, are, what matters to you? Are you more concerned with your reputation or with glorifying God? Are, are your motives for serving God pure or are they selfish? Can you serve God without the luxury of public recognition? There's a poem that I've read a number of times over the years. It's written by a, a woman named Ruth Harms Calkin. But it's, it's called I Wonder. She writes this, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the, ca the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That's the heart of Paul. Honestly, that's the heart of Christ. He came to serve, not to be served. Well, let's back up to verse 18. I want to read verse 18 again because it leads into uh, the next couple of verses. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. And here's, here's the part we hadn't read yet. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, Paul had been able to rejoice during his time in prison, which by, at this point in time, it's been about two years in prison, and he's still been able to rejoice. He could rejoice that good results could come from preachers, even with preachers with bad motives. He, he could continue to rejoice no matter how long he would remain in prison or, or, or no matter how long he would continue to live. And Paul could rejoice because he knew that, that all that had happened would turn out, he said he believed it would happen, it would turn out for his deliverance. Now, I think the question for us here is, because there's, it's a little bit hard to understand because he talks about this confidence in deliverance, but then he's, then later on in a verse or two, we're going to see that he's like, I don't know, I may live or I may die. I don't know. So what, what kind of deliverance did Paul envision? There's some scholars that argue that Paul was, was referring to his upcoming trial and, and he believed that he would be acquitted, that he would be set free. Um, that, that actually appears unlikely because of Paul's words in the next verse uh, that reveal his uncertainty about the outcome of the trial. Because Paul's, Paul said, Christ, and he said here, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Others think that Paul was referring to his apostleship in the face of the envious preachers. Uh, you know, because mo most scholars agree that Paul was actually quoting from Job 13, 16, 
where he said, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance for no godless person would dare come before him. Job was saying, in essence, he was saying, this will turn out for my deliverance because if I ever get to stand before God and I, and I make my case, then, then I will be vindicated. And so uh, some thought that he was saying that, that uh, in the same way, Paul would be vindicated when he finally gets to, to stand before Caesar. But others believe that like, like Job, he, that Paul was focusing more on his relationship with God. And, 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 and most likely he's really talking about the ultimate deliverance that's just saying, listen, it doesn't matter what happens. If I die, that's a deliverance. If I'm set free, that's a deliverance. Either way it goes, I'm good with it. I, it's a win for me either way it goes. In the end, no matter what the outcome, Paul would ultimately be delivered. And he recognized that his ultimate fate, honestly, he, he believed this, and this is, I believe he's right on with this. He believed that his ultimate fate rested not with the courts of Rome, but his ultimate fate rested in the hands of God. Paul, Paul expected to be delivered, but, but not by a daring raid. He wasn't expecting commandos to come and, you know, break him out of the Roman prison out of, you know, and kill all the guards and set him free. That's what we would make in our movies today, you know, but, but, but the means of his deliverance, he says, are, are prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he said, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the, whole, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So it's through those two things. Now, you know, Paul was never too big of a man to remember that he needed the prayers of his friends. He never got so big and, and full of himself that he thought to himself, I don't need your prayers. I can do this on my own. He always remembered that neither he nor the people who were praying for him could do anything without the help of God. And Paul believes that God will use the Philippians' prayers for him while he's in, a, in captivity to help uh, him per persevere with sufficient courage and ultimately to stand before God as one of his redeemed people. And then he says it's through their prayers, but also through the spirit of Jesus Christ. That, that's the spirit is the divine means through which this help is going to come. So they pray and the Holy Spirit ministers. Now, that's a powerful reminder for us here. And the reminder is this. Our prayers really matter. They really matter. The Holy Spirit moves in the lives of people when we pray for them. When people are in sorrow, one of their greatest comforts is the awareness that others are bearing them to the throne of grace. When, when, when they have, have to face some backbreaking effort or some heartbreaking decision, there is new strength in remembering that others are lifting them up before God. When, when missionaries go into new places that are far from home, it is empowering for them to know that the prayers of those who love them are crossing oceans and crossing continents to bring them before the throne of grace. You know, I, I believe we, we really cannot call a man our friend unless we pray for him. You know, and, and in response to that, the question always arises, well, if God has all this power to do these miracles in the lives of people, then why do we even need to pray? Why doesn't God just do it? Well, you know, I, I, I believe this with all my heart. I believe the answer lies in the truth that without prayer, we would take the miracles and the intervention of God for granted. We, we would, I believe that. We would treat those answers, the, the movement of God and what He does, we would treat those things the way we treat nearly every breath that we take. 
Because you know what? If God took his hand off of your life, you would cease to exist. Colossians says he existed before anything else and he holds all things together. If God removed his hand from your life, you would fly into a billion pieces. He holds you together. He keeps your heart beating. He causes you to continue breathing. He makes all of your bodily systems to continue functioning. Yet let me ask you this. How many of us thank God for the last breath that we took? I didn't. I'll be honest. And I even knew I was going to teach this. No, we tend to take for granted the things that he does for us without our asking. However, when we see the miracle working hand of God at work after we pray, suddenly we are awakened to the reality of his power and we take note that he has moved to answer our prayer and then we in turn give him glory for what he has done. When we pray, he brings us into this equation because when we pray and he moves, he is glorified in all of that situation and we begin to see God is doing this. We become aware of it. Paul wrote that through the prayers of the Philippians and the working of the Holy Spirit, he would find deliverance. But you know what, Paul? He, he knows he may never escape detention. His shackles may never be loosened. But his response is, so what? So what? I'm still delivered. Regardless of what happens to his body, he knew he couldn't lose. Whether he lived or died, it was going to be all about Christ. He knew he couldn't lose no matter what. Can I tell you something? That is the key to real freedom. When you honestly understand my life is, the, is in the hands of God, whether I live or die, it's all about him. And, and if I live, it's for his glory. If I die, I get to go into his presence. When we understand that, that brings real freedom to us because we are now suddenly we're free from the fear of death and we're, uh, we're free from the fear of what other people may think or say about us. It, that's the key to real freedom, understanding that my life is in the hands of God and that no matter what, I win in the end. That's like I've used the verse many times before where it, say, where it says uh, that it says to don't grow weary in, in doing good because in due time we will reap a harvest if we, uh, and of course, you know, all these different translations all mixed together, but so, but I like the, I love the beauty of the King James, if we faint not. Another way to say that is if we don't give up. He says we'll reap a harvest if we don't quit. And my translation is, if we don't quit, we can't lose. That's what Paul understood. He said he had an eager expectation and hope. And, and the Greek word translated eagerly expect, it, it means an eager, intense look which turns away from everything else to fix on the one object of its desire. And then the word hope, it, it, it literally means a confident expectation. We've talked about that before. That's not the way we use hope where we, well, I hope it happens where it may or may not. It's more of a confident expectation where we know it's going to happen. So we're alert and we're watching for it. 
uh, Paul expected not to be put to shame in any way. And he, he looked upon his situation as an opportunity to present the gospel to the seat of power in the Roman Empire. He fully expected to speak boldly before the court to be able to give a defense of the gospel, to tell them what the gospel really is all about. And I want you to understand, in that process of going before the court... Paul is not concerned about the verdict of his trial. He was much more concerned about the testimony he would leave behind. He, he's confident that Christ will be exalted. And I love that word exalted. It, it, it literally means to make large. That's where we, we get the, we get the uh, I know you've heard it if you've been in church very long. There's an old song that said, magnify the Lord with me, you know, and to a new generation like magnify, because they think of magnify, but it's actually a pretty good word. Because what do you do when you magnify something? You're making it large. And that's what he's saying. He, he's saying Christ is going to be exalted. He's going to be made large. I'm going to be made small. It's all about him. And Paul expected it through the help of the Holy Spirit that Christ would, would be lifted up and honored, whether by his life or by his death. If the verdict were to go against him, Paul, uh, excuse me, Christ would be glorified in Paul's martyrdom. And if he were to be released, then he would continue to welcome the opportunity to keep serving the Lord. Either way, no matter what, Paul sees it as a win for the gospel. Look at verse 21. Very famous verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, labor for me, yet which, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better. Uh, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. For, for Paul, the essence of life was Christ. Everything Paul desired or attempted was inspired by his devotion to Christ. His, his entire life was consumed with Jesus Christ and his purposes. For, for Paul, Christ had been, been the beginning of life. For on the day on the, on the Damascus Road, it, he, he had begun life all over again. Christ had been the continuing of life. There had never been a day when Paul had not lived in his presence. Uh, and in the frightening moments, Christ had been there to, to bid him good cheer, to be of good cheer. Christ was the strength of his life. Christ was the inspiration of his life. Christ was the meaning for his life. Christ was the reward at the end of his life. If Christ were to be taken out of his life for Paul, there would be nothing left. To live is Christ. You know, sometimes today we compartmentalize our lives. We're really good at this. We have our church life, we, you know, we act a certain way here. We have our work life. We do a certain thing. We have our home life, maybe, you know, our friend's life, whatever. But, you know, the truth is what, what we're called to, to be, what we're called to do, we, we're called to be consumed with Christ. Jesus Christ must be the center of every part of our life. You know, I've always, I've always said this. Well, I haven't always. That's kind of an overstatement, I guess. I didn't say it when I was three. Uh, but, but I've often said, that's a better way to say it, that we should stop thinking about putting Christ first and begin thinking about putting him in the center. And, and the reason I say that is because when we say I'm going to put Christ first, it's easy then to get into a situation 
where you say, okay, I've got all these things I need to do today, but I'm going to put Christ first and I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, and then we go out through the rest of the day and we don't even think about him anymore. But when we put him in center of everything, I, I picture it like this, uh, a bicycle wheel. You've got that hub in the middle. You've got all of these spokes that are going out from that hub. Those are all the different parts of your life, whether it's work or school or, or, or church or friends or whatever it might be, your financial life, whatever it might be. It, it, all of those things are connected to the hub in the center, in the very middle of everything, the very center of every part of my life. That's where Christ must be, where every decision I make is weighed upon whether or not it brings him glory, where everything I do, it's all about Lord is is this what you want from me or is this a way that you can bring glory to your name where every part of my life is connected to him and to him alone that it's all about him that's what it means to live is Christ I don't know about you but I got a long way to go to get there nobody said amen I guess it's just me I got a long way to go to get there we have to ask ourselves is my life centered on Jesus Christ or is he just a part of my life? Even if we say he's the most important part, that's not what he wants to be. He's calling to be our life. If the verdict here should go for Paul and he should be released, he says that would mean more fruitful labor, further missionary travels, more churches planted, more converts, strengthening of, of fellow believers, the strengthening of churches that he's planted, more opportunities to serve Christ. However, the reality was there. Paul knew that he could be sentenced to death. That was a real a possibility, real possibility. But in Paul's eyes, he says, that's, that's not such a bad thing. To, to die to him would not be a tragedy. But it would actually be a re realization of his hope. Be a realization of all that he expected to happen in his life with Christ. Death would be a release from the toils and troubles of life. Death was a gateway into Christ's presence. And to die would be gain because Paul's martyrdom would glorify Christ. And it would also bring him face to face with his Savior. Now, I want you to say, understand this. He was, not, he was not talking about these things and feeling suicidal. You know, That's not what he was talking about at all. He wasn't talking about it taking his own life. He said, if this happens to me... He he says, I know, I know that there are things that I need to be doing, but if it happens, he's trying to let the Philippians know it's okay. It's all right. To, to live, though, would continue, to Paul's, continue Paul's ministry of spreading the gospel. But I want you to get this. Paul was ready to live because he was ready to die. You know, do, do you, if you don't have something to, to die for, you don't have anything to live for. He belonged to Christ and he was confident of his eternal destination. And because of that, he would donate his entire life on earth for living for Christ. And the question is, where is your hope? Is it in this life or is it in the next? Until you're ready to die, you'll never be ready to live. Until you're ready to say, and listen, I'm not just talking about a physical death either. I'm talking about dying to my old self, dying to my own desires. Until I'm ready to die... I'm never really going to find life. Paul states that death would be preferred to life if more glory could be given to Christ as a result of that. 
And he's, he's not saying, what a burden. If, if, I'm, if, if I'm alive, I, I've got to do this toilsome work. Instead, he seems to be saying being alive is a gift. And he's saying, if I'm alive, I'm responsible to use it. And that fruitful labor is a must. But you know the reality of it is? While he's talking about this, between, going between these two things, the reality was Paul didn't really have a choice. He didn't have a choice to make. Paul knew that both his living and dying were the decision of God's sovereign will. The decision whether Paul would live or die was in God's hands. Yet, yet if the decision were up to him, he, he, he was saying, I, I don't know what I would choose. And eventually he does come to a conclusion. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but, but the two choices to him were equally compelling. The desire to die and then be with Christ himself or the desire to stay alive and continue his service to Christ. He didn't know what he really wanted because both were so appealing to him. While Paul lived in intimate communion with Christ during his, his service on earth, being with Christ in heaven would be even closer and more intimate than any human can imagine. We can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. Th these words reveal Paul's understanding of death. Paul doesn't expect it to to wait in purgatory somewhere. Uh, he doesn't expect to go into some kind of soul sleep, which that's a, a common teaching. It's not as much as it used to be, but, but Paul expected to be immediately present with the Lord. He even said that in another place where he wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul knew that it would be better by far to depart this life and to be with Christ Death would, would remove him from the trials of this world and it would bring him face to face with his Savior. And he was prepared to die at any moment for his faith. And he actually, in a way, looked forward to that moment because of the certainty, certainty of heaven. Uh, but he also knew that his personal desires had to be subordinated to the will of God. He was saying, uh, and eventually he did say, if I had to really choose, I'd like to go to be with Jesus. But he also said, I think God has more for me to do. So even though that's my desire, my desire has to come un under subjection to what God wants. And he felt that his ministry on earth wasn't complete and that he needed to remain in the body to help the churches grow. And, and, and in that sense, he, paced, he placed the his fellow believers' needs above his own desires. And, and leading to that, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's aim at, at the moment is to convince the, the Philippian church that whatever happens to him in, in his present imprisonment, that it won't mean, even if he dies, it won't mean that everything's gone terribly wrong. He knows that there is a reasonable chance that those in authority could decide that he's better off dead, which oddly enough, Paul would agree. <laughs> He'd say, yeah, actually, you know, I am better off dead. I agree with you on that one. But he knows that there's a reasonable chance that the authorities may suddenly decide it's time to execute him. Because understand, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, human life was cheap, much like human life is cheap in our world today, by the way. But I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, but, uh, but human life was cheap in the Roman world and perceived troublemakers. You didn't have to be a real troublemaker. If they perceived you as a troublemaker, you were easily and quickly dispatched. And, and he wants to put the Philippians in a frame of mind that if news of, of his death suddenly arrives uh, to them, that they will know that he himself was both ready for it and quite happy about it. 
At the same time, he knows deep in his bones that there's more work for him to do. The churches he has already founded needed, they need much more teaching and leading. There are more churches that need to be planted. I mean, after all, if God called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, there are plenty more parts of the Gentile world where the name of Jesus has not even been heard yet. He's quite confident then that God will, in fact, allow him to be released and resume his traveling ministry. He's, he's very certain of that. But, but I want you to understand this, because we read this and we tend to kind of sterilize it a little bit. Paul is being very upbeat, very positive here. Uh, but but I, want, I, want you to I want to read another passage of another time when Paul was going through some similar circumstances. And I want you to see something here because we need to understand that while here we, he's, he has this confidence, he has this faith, he has this joy, he, that we need to understand that he had to deal with real human emotions and he had to deal with real discouragement in, in, when he was going through painful, difficult times. But listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the death sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that he, that he will deliver us again. Paul describes something that happened in Asia. Things come to a point where he not only thought he was going to be killed, but where his own spirits reached a, a, such a low ebb that he felt the potential death sentence going right down into his own heart and mind. He was saying we, we, we despaired of life itself. He, he wasn't just you know, some superhuman that didn't grapple with the same issues that we deal with. He had those things, but he also he had a faith that went beyond those emotions. In other words... We shouldn't assume that just because the present passage strikes an almost cheerful tone that this is how Paul always felt. His belief never wavered. But just like you and me, his feelings came and went. Learning to distinguish between the two and to maintain belief and hope with or without the accompanying feelings is itself part of Christian maturity. Learning to not rely on our emotions. And that's a difficult thing. We, we always got to remember that our feelings will lie to us. They will lie to us all the time. But God will always speak the truth to us. Therefore, we learn to stand on the solid rock of our faith, regardless of the feelings that invade our hearts and minds from time to time. That's what Paul did. In other words, let me put it this way. Don't be a slave to your emotions. Don't be a slave to your feelings. Don't be the one who's always getting triggered at something. Live by what you know to be true according to the Word of God. Live on that. Paul knew that heaven would be better than, than this life and he looked forward to it. Yet in obedience to Christ, Paul would work and serve as Christ saw fit. said, if he allows me to live, it's because he's got work for me to do. And you know what? As we work for Christ on this earth, we've got to avoid two errors. One, we, we must avoid the error to work and lose sight of our ultimate home with Christ. It's really easy to get involved and, and consumed 
overwhelmed with the work we're doing and forget that this world is not our home. Easy to do, isn't it? But we also need to avoid the error to desire only to be with Christ and neglect the work that he's called us to do. You know what we have to do? We have to work hard now. Live, live at our peak. Serve, excuse me, serve and love those around us. Help the church grow. Uh, be be a, a, a healing balm in the hands of Jesus to touch the lives of someone, someone whose life is wounded. H however, you know, in, 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 while we do that, while we work, while we serve, while we love, we always need to remember that there is a better day coming. We need to re remember that there is a day coming when all of this will be over and all the pain and all the issues will be done. And there is a day coming when we will be with Christ. We will be with him in person, face to face with our Savior. That gives us hope beyond the circumstances, beyond the emotions, beyond whatever is going on in our lives. And it gives us, it allows us to work hard while we're here because we realize that this is just a temporary stop for us. Make the most of every day that you have. Make the, uh, take advantage of every opportunity that the Holy Spirit gives you to preach the gospel, to tell somebody about Jesus. And when I say that, I'm not even talking about saying, well, let me tell you about the, the four spiritual laws. That's what I'm talking about. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just talking about you just for you to be able to tell somebody, let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me. Your testimony. Let me tell you how Jesus has changed my life. That's the gospel. That's, that's the starting point. So, so do that. But at the same time, keep an eye on the eastern sky. Always remember, keep one eye toward heaven. Remember why you're doing it. Because you want to take them with you. You ever think about that? There's only one thing you can take to heaven with you. That's people. So what should our priority be? The people that God loves so much that he gave his only begotten son. The gospel that can save them. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Next week, we'll pick it up in verse 27. But let's pray and just, and as we pray, just ask him to say, Lord, um, help me to work hard, but to keep the, the, the reality of your return, uh, of my eventual entrance into your presence in mind so that it gives me motivation that keeps me moving forward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have this hope that goes beyond the circumstances of life. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we choose joy. We, ha we can choose joy <clears throat> simply because of the fact that we know this life is not all there is. These circumstances are always temporary. No matter, even if it lasts the rest of my life, it's still temporary. And Lord, I will focus on the eternal and, and not be swayed by the temporary. And Lord, in that, I have joy regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the emotions. I have joy. I have this confident expectation, this hope that you are going to see me through, that you're going to finish the work that you started in me. And God, I just pray that you'd help us to live our lives that way, that we would be consumed with Christ, 
more and more and more and more that, Lord, every part of our life would be connected to you at the very center of everything, Lord God. And as we do that, I pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified in such a way that other people would say, I need you to tell me about what's different in your life because there's something different about you and I want to know what it is. And God, I pray in that moment that we'd be ready to share the gospel anytime, any place, with anyone. And we give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.